0: Uh, Well, today, uh, you are in for maybe a treat, depending on uh, what you think of this. But um, I have not one, but two illustrations uh, from World War II. So if you like history, yay. If not, sorry. Um, And that's because Don and I just watched uh, a movie about World War II called Midway. I'm not sure if you've seen it. It's it's quite a good movie about the Battle of Midway when the U.S. uh, Pacific Fleet fought the Japanese fleet in World War II. It began uh, with Pearl Harbor. Of course, surprise attack uh, by the Japanese on the Americans. Uh, The Americans were not prepared for it at all. Uh, Their their battleships were all sort of parked in the harbor nose to nose. Their planes were all parked wingtip to wingtip in the middle of the airfields. Easy easy targets. Uh, They were not on high alert, uh, but they could have been. They should have been. Uh, If they had listened to this man, his name was Lieutenant Commander Edwin T. Layton. Uh, You can see him there. Uh, he he was the head or kind of the highest ranking uh, intelligence officer uh, at Pearl Harbor at the time. And he and his team had been tracking kind of uh, Japanese communications, their movements, and he had been saying, look, uh, we should be ready for an attack. Like, like we're not sure what is going to happen, but we we sh- something is happening soon. We should be on high alert. Uh, his commanders did not listen, especially those in Washington did not listen, and the results were devastating. And the point that I'm making is that it's, it's always best to see the reality of the situation, not the way we hope things would be. Uh, this is true, clearly, in war, uh, where the, you know, the, the signs are pointing to something coming. We, we should pay heed to that. Same thing uh, in our personal life. Uh, our lives are ruined because people see things as they want them to be rather than as they are. This happens in our finances. As, as debt is mounting and we're kind of turning a blind eye, hoping it will somehow get better, Health concerns, same thing, we don't really want to go into the doctor, don't really want to see what's wrong with that ache or, or that pain, and the results are always, are always worse. I bring this up because this really is what Jesus is going to speak to us about today in this passage. Not a long passage, but he's going to speak to us about the importance of seeing the reality of the situation. See, the disciples whom he's been talking to over the last little while we've been, we've been looking at, they, they've seen amazing things. I mean, by this point in the ministry of Jesus, they've seen so many miracles, so many healings. um, They're expecting that Jesus is going to conquer the Romans, bring peace, bring the the kingdom of God into earth right now, and Jesus is going to bring peace, but what we're going to see here today is that he's also going to be bringing judgment, and he's also going to bring division, and that as his disciples, they needed to be ready for that, and we also today need to be ready for that. So that's where we're going. And I'm going to begin by reading uh, the entire text, which is, again, not that long, and then we're going to look at three realities uh, of Jesus coming to earth the first time, his first coming. So uh, we're going to begin in verse 49 of chapter 12. Uh, it'll be on the screen. If you don't have your Bibles with you, you can read along or listen. Here's God's word to us today. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That's the text for us this morning. Now, the three things that we're going to point out here, I'm just going to give you three words so that it will be easy to remember and they kind of really get to the focal point of what Jesus is saying. So the three realities of the coming of Jesus, three things, fire, suffering, and division. Fire, suffering, division. And we're going to begin with fire. And uh, I want to look, at, obviously, to at verse 49, the first verse, where he says, I came to cast fire on the earth. And would that it were already kindled. So Jesus is not speaking here about literal fire; Um, that is to come in the first coming. What he's speaking about here is figuratively—he's figuratively speaking—fiery trials, that that sort of thing. Uh, But eventually, with the second coming, there will, in fact, be fire upon the earth. Uh, These words, though, are important for us to take note of because people tend to have uh, the—they tend to focus on the words of Jesus that are uh, warm and fuzzy. And that means that people often have the impression, right, that Jesus is this kind of one-dimensional spiritual leader. He's all about the grace, all about the love, kind of an antidote to the God of the Old Testament, which is all about fire and and judgment. And now Jesus comes and kind of sets things right. What we see here is that um, there's one God in the Bible, one and the same, Uh, the Old Testament, New Testament, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, same nature, same intentions, same character, And so, Jesus, as he comes here the first time, he is all about the love. Of course, he's here about grace. He's here to bring mercy for those of us in our sin. But it's not a superficial, head-in-the-sand kind of love. It's a love that actually deals with the harsh realities of life, which means he deals with sin. And that's where the fire comes in. Because in the Bible, fire is always associated with two things to do with with sin. Judgment and purification. Purification. Judgment and purification. We, we see this all over the place. A couple of quick examples. Um, judgment is, is, of course, punishing sin. Uh, the, the story of what happened to the city of Sodom in the Old Testament is the most kind of obvious, literal example. Here's a wicked city, totally turned their backs on God, want nothing to do with God, going their own way, violent towards each other. And the response from God is judgment, justice. That fire literally comes from the sky, wipes out the city, We are told in Hebrews 12, 29, this about God. Our God is a consuming fire. He's a consuming fire because he is holy and pure and perfect. And whenever sin, impurity, evil, wickedness comes into his presence, it is just incinerated. That's that's the idea of God's judgment. It is the right response. It's in his very nature to judge sin. The other aspect of fire, though, that we see in the Bible is purification. Purification is, um, well, here's Malachi 3.2. Speaking about the coming Messiah, says simply, for he is like a refiner's fire. A refiner's fire is a fire where you take gold or silver or precious metal and it heats up. There's fire there, but it's for the purpose of, of burning out all the impurities. We know this metaphor, I think. And so that's what we see in terms of, when we think of fire in the Bible, there's both. There's the, the judgment, fire of judgment, but also purifying fire. So the question is, what kind of fire did Jesus bring? He said he came to cast fire upon the earth. What kind of fire is it? Well, the answer is both. It's both kinds of fire. And we see this in particular when John the Baptist uh, introduces Jesus. People are seeing John the Baptist, he's a prophet, they can clearly see from God. They're like, Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And um, here's his answer. This is in Luke 3, 16-17. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he, it's Jesus, who is mightier than I, is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, there's purification, and fire, there's judgment. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So you see there that both of those things are part of why Jesus came. That he does have the winnowing fork. The idea there is there's wheat, right? You thresh it, the good wheat you put in the barn, but the rest you burn. It's worthless. There's judgment there, but there's also purity. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, look, I I thought that the first time Jesus came, it was all about the grace. Isn't that what the cross is all about? He came to uh, bring help and mercy to people in their sin, and then the second time, it's gonna be all about the judgment. So what... I never really noticed this. What, what, am, how am I, what am I to make of this? Well, listen, grace and mercy was definitely the main point of why Jesus came. I mean, that's the whole thing about the cross, that he would bring mercy to sinners. But what we need to understand is that when it comes to grace and salvation, it's always one side of a coin. And the other side is judgment because there's only two answers to sin, either the grace of God or the judgment of God. And so the deciding factor between which of these you experience is is your very nature. Just like the deciding factor of what fire does depends on the nature of the thing being burned. If you're straw, you're going to be burned up. If you're gold, you're going to be purified. So if you're someone who has faith, when the fiery trials of life come, it is not God wanting to judge you. If you have faith, you, you endure through the fire and you are purified. There may, be, there may be some here. It happens all the time in our lives that there are fiery trials. We're told not to be surprised by fiery trials. And the purpose of those trials is not to punish us in our sin, not to show God's displeasure, but, but to grow us in our faith. If you're feeling like God has got it out for you, if you're feeling you're a person of faith, like God is just trying to torment you, that's, that's not correct. God's intention towards those who are his people is to purify us to bring circumstances, to, to raise the heat so that we get to a point where we can understand our sin more clearly, turn away from it, embrace him more fully. It's a blessing of God. It's the grace of God. But to people without faith, all of that heat, all, all of that fire in their lives, it's, it's a precursor to the coming judgment against sin. In this moment, thankfully, it's not here yet. If you're here this morning and you don't yet have faith and you're experiencing real trials in your life, it's not that God is wanting to punish you right now. What he wants to do is get your attention. He wants for you to come to the point of of seeing, look, if I feel hopeless now, what's it gonna be like at the end of my life when I'm standing before the throne of God? It'll be even more desperate. Jesus did come to bring fire into the world. Fires Fires of judgment, fires of purification. Both are at work from the time of his ministry until today. The second thing he mentions is suffering and suffering is really what kind of is really the crux of of why he came. So suffering is the second thing and we see it in verse 50 and you might be surprised uh, when I say that, but look at verse 50. Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So what baptism is Jesus speaking about here? It's not his baptism in the Jordan River. That already happened. It's not our baptism, like as believers being baptized, because that's for us. And that's happening in in the future. He's talking about a baptism that he is going to experience. And and he's in distress until it is accomplished. Uh, What Bible scholars point to is that really what he's speaking about here is his crucifixion. His death on the cross. And if it seems strange that he would use the word baptism, we have to understand in the Greek, baptisma, it does mean immersed in water, but it also means an ordeal, a great suffering. And that's sometimes how it's used. When they talked about destroying a city, sometimes they would talk about baptizing a city. So this great suffering was the same connotation. And that is what Jesus knew was coming for him. He knew that great suffering was coming at the cross. And that's why he was in such distress. He was anticipating the suffering that he would endure so that we would be saved. Sometimes when we think of the cross, we, we feel like for Jesus, it probably wasn't that bad. Uh, maybe not that bad, but look, he was the son of God, we sometimes think. And so sure, it was, I mean, it was excruciating, but I mean, he, he was divine, so he would have been able to endure it. But we need to remember, so the Bible is very clear that he, he was divine. He is divine. And yet he poured himself fully into a human vessel. So that meant that he experienced life on earth just like we do. He was tired, he was exhausted, he he was hungry. He experienced physical pain, all sorts of pain just like we would experience it. In fact, his divinity combined with his humanity meant that he could take on more pain and more suffering than any regular human being could. That's how we could atone for our sins. So Jesus knew that the suffering would be real. He knew that and it distressed him. Just like we are distressed when we have a surgery coming up. We know what will be involved. We we know the pain. We've been told the recovery. We know it's a good thing, but we're still distressed. That's how Jesus was feeling. He knew the plan of the cross. He had come up with the plan with the Father before the foundation of the world. He knew in detail what was going to happen to him. He knew the darkness. He knew the injustice. He knew the abandonment. He knew the weight of sin that he would have to take on. He knew all of it, and yet he didn't long for it to be taken away. He longed to do the will of the Father. In fact, back in Luke chapter 9, we'd already seen that he had he had been resolved to go to Jerusalem. That's the road that he was on. Look at Luke 9:51. It says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, that's the expression meaning taken up on the cross. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's what was going on right now. Jesus was on the road to Jerusalem. He was resolved. He knew that the suffering was coming. There was distress in his heart and yet he was resolved because he wanted for it to be accomplished. To achieve the thing that needed to be done for us in our sin. And so here's here's my second illustration. This is what I was thinking of when I was watching that movie. Um, I didn't realize the importance of dive bombers in the Second World War, especially in this, in this area of the war. I'd, I'd heard of dive bombers, like I knew the expression, but I didn't know what they actually did. So here's a picture, just so we're clear. It's a very small plane with a bomb, obviously, attached underneath. And uh, what they would do, this was really the only way to take out, one of the main ways to take out the aircraft carriers, is that they would fly, uh, you know, thousands of feet in the air, and then they would dive at a very sharp angle like just, just screaming down uh, almost directly overhead of the aircraft carrier. Their bomber site was actually on the front of where they were flying the plane, so they could look straight down. And then just before they got to, to the bottom of their dive, they would pull up, level out, so they didn't crash into the ocean, release the bomb onto hopefully the target, and, and it would be destroyed. What I didn't realize is the whole time they're doing this, every gun in the area is pointed at them. And so when they're flying down towards their target, it's just, it's just an inferno. of of explosions, they go in squadrons because by the time they get to the bottom of of their dive, most of the planes are destroyed. And hopefully one gets through and releases the bomb and hits the target. There's a scene in the movie where they've they've been through the first battle. They've destroyed uh, three of the aircraft carriers. Pretty much half the planes are gone. Half the pilots are are dead. And they're in their ready room in the US aircraft carrier and this guy Richard Best, he's kind of the commander, says, we have to go back out. There's one more aircraft carrier. And you can see the guys, they're bleeding, they're exhausted. Their planes are, are falling apart, but they all stand up and they all go back. And, and they know what they're going into. They know that most of them are not coming back. And they do it, why? They do it because they, they know what's at stake. They knew, they knew that Hitler was still on the move in Europe. They knew that the Japanese fleet would not stop until everyone was gone. And so they went headlong into suffering for the sake of freedom and that's really what we need to understand that, that Jesus did. He knew what he was going towards. He was feeling, just like we would feel the distress of it. And yet, for his, because of his love for us, because of his desire to, to glorify the Father, he went headlong to the cross. It's a wondrous thing to behold. We, we should be thinking about this more. And I'm so glad that today is, is Communion Sunday because really that's the whole point of the Lord's table that we would have times when we gather together and we remember what happened on the cross. I mean, the elements themselves are given so that we remember the physicality of it, his body given for us, his blood given for us. Why? So that our sins would be atoned for. What a wonderful thing it is to have a savior that would do that for us. It should, it should encourage us, it should, it should cause us just to, to worship our savior and, and it should cause us to, to live that kind of a life too, right? Right? that we would be willing to go headlong into suffering for the sake of those who are lost, for the sake of those who need help, willing to expend ourselves again to honor our Savior. That's the second thing we see here, that Jesus came for fire. He came to be baptized into death for suffering. The third thing, third thing, is division. This one's a bit surprising. Look, Look at this verse, verse 51. He says to his disciples, do you think, That I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Now that's surprising because I think if he had given his disciples a chance to answer that question, they all would have said yes. Like, do you think that I came to bring peace to earth? They probably would have been like, is this a trick question? Yes, yes. You're the Messiah, right? So from the time of Isaiah, we've been told that the Messiah would be the Prince of Peace. And when you were born, the angels proclaimed peace on earth. And Jesus had been talking about peace, blessed are the, the peacemakers. So they would, have, they would have said, yeah, you're, you're here to bring peace, aren't you? And part of the answer is, of course, yes. Yes. I mean, because of what Jesus did on the cross, we have a peace that we can never acquire on our own. We have peace with God. Our sin has been taken away. We can step boldly into the throne room of God. We have, we have peace with God Almighty in spite of our sin. We also have an inner peace. We no longer have to be subject to self-doubt and condemnation and, and worry and guilt and shame. We, we have an answer to all of that. We are new in Christ. We have immeasurable peace in Christ, but, but we don't yet have peace with all the people around us. And that's what Jesus was speaking about. In fact, Jesus actually brought greater division between the people of the world with his coming. And we see it as soon as his ministry begins. Think of the response from the Jewish community. Think of the immense division. Jesus started preaching, started teaching. Some people said, this is the Messiah. They believed, they started following him. They were amazed. Other people wanted to kill him. Other people said, this guy is a blasphemer, a false prophet, immense division. Think of the response in in the empire of Rome. I mean, all through the first 100, 400 years of Christianity in the early church, what do we see? Just speaking the name of Jesus would get you beaten, would get you thrown into prison. Immense division between the the empire at, at the time. There's also division between all the other religions and Christianity. I mean, Jesus said, I'm the way. There's no other way to God. We see even to this day that in many countries of the world, the name of Jesus will bring imprisonment, violence, and death. Division all over the place, all the time, at the name of Jesus. Even in the West, the peaceful West, the name of Jesus causes division. Just try to bring up his name in conversation, at at the lunch table, in class, in any sort of public discourse. The results are always divisive. it's, It's never peaceful. I remember one time, just, um, this is a number of years ago, I was just wearing a t-shirt, a day camp shirt, uh, that had Jesus on the back. And I remember one of my friends, who's not a believer, he said to me, we were going, I don't know, we were going somewhere, and he said, "Um, I don't know if you should wear that shirt. I said, why? He said, well, it's kind of offensive. And I said, what's offensive about it? And he wasn't sure. But he knew that the name of Jesus, that that's going to make people uncomfortable, so what is it about Jesus that brings such division? Well, for one thing, he always forces the issue, doesn't he? I mean, Jesus doesn't allow us just to sort of be on the fence about him. Just to be like, well, he's, man, he's got some great things to say, but I'm not really sure he's God. I, gotta, I don't know if I, Je- no, Jesus forces the issue. Remember Luke 11:23? 23, he says, whoever is not with me is against me. He makes such such um, amazing claims such stark claims about himself that he actually is God, that you can't, you can't kind of be on the fence. You're either one way or the other. The other big reason, of course, is what he taught, what he said, what the word of God says. His teaching is not acceptable in a relativistic, secular, pluralistic world, like our culture. Because he, he doesn't say that all roads lead to God. He doesn't say that all people are essentially good. He doesn't say that you just need to believe in yourself and and believe in your heart. He doesn't say you can just do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anyone. He doesn't say that marriage and gender and sexuality are just whatever you want them to be. He, He doesn't teach that way. He teaches that there is a way that God ordered the world and created human beings. And he demands careful obedience and costly loyalty. So the result is a division between those people who see those Glorious truths as true in those who do not. And the heartbreaking part is that these divisions happen not just kind of out there in the world or on Twitter, right? They, they happen in our families. That's, that's what he's saying in verses 52 and 53. There's a, there's a family of five. And they're divided on the issue of Jesus. Mother and father divided against son, daughter-in-law, and daughter. We're not sure who is on which side, but it's mutual. The division is mutual. It's painful. And we know that this is true to this day, that in places in the world, like Iran, like Afghanistan, if you come to faith in Jesus, it means you no longer have an earthly family. In fact, uh, your earthly family may seek to kill you to bring honor back to their family. That's the depth of division that Jesus brings. But listen, Jesus doesn't want to pull families apart. That's not his desire in this. His desire is to preach the truth of the gospel so that people would be saved. It's the negative response to the gospel, the sin in people's hearts that brings division. Look here at what um, J.C. Ryle says. I think this is helpful. He says, it is not the gospel which is to blame, but the corrupt heart of man So long as some men and women will not repent and believe, and some will, there must needs be division. To be surprised at it is the height of folly. The very existence of division is one proof of Christ's foresight and the truth of Christianity. See, what he's saying there is, is look, the very fact that we look around and we see division because of Jesus tells us, for one thing, he was telling the truth. He knew it was going to happen. But also it says that it is is true because there is sin in the world. And because as people reject Jesus, there, there will necessarily be division. The underlying point that he's making is this should not surprise us. We, we shouldn't be surprised by this. In fact, that's, that's I think what Jesus is doing here in this text. He doesn't want his disciples, he doesn't want us to be surprised. He, he wants us to understand that all of this division was not just a byproduct, like an unfortunate byproduct of him coming to earth. It was part of it. It would always be part of it and that we should be ready as his disciples to endure the hardships and heartaches that come from speaking the name of Jesus wherever we go. We should be ready for the divisions that enter our lives when we follow Christ. And I think we need to be asking ourselves, are we ready? Because frankly, I'm not sure that we are. I'm not sure that we're really ready for these kinds of divisions as individuals or as the church. And I say that because I think a lot of the time when we come to the point of division, of like proclaiming the name of Jesus, just bringing him up or whatever it may be, we we tend to hesitate. We we find ways around our biblical convictions to kind of keep peace with the people in our life. We we find ways um, to keep peace so that our friendships and our family relationships and our business relationships can stay intact. I think there are lots of times when we would rather stay united with those who don't believe rather than be divided with Jesus because it's costly and difficult and hard and painful. And I mean, honestly, I struggle with this a lot. Some of you don't mind making people feel uncomfortable. I don't love that, frankly. Some of us are blessed with just the gift of being like, I'm just gonna say it and you can think whatever you think. It, but a lot of us are like, ah, that makes me feel uncomfortable. And, and so it's hard very often when we feel a conviction to actually say something, to actually do something. But here's, here's the thing I'm increasingly convicted of. It's not loving to be silent about these things. It's not compassionate. When, when, when biblical truth, when the gospel is at stake, It it actually does the people around us a disservice if if we're not loving them enough to speak this kind of truth. So here's an example um, that I came across just to sort of help you to see how this dynamic, how this works. Um, I got this from listening to um, The Briefing with Al Mohler. Uh, It's a podcast. Some of you might know him. He's a Southern Baptist Theological Seminary president. And he's got this daily show where he unpacks the day's news from a Christian point of view. It's really really helpful. So I think last week he was telling the story of how a same-sex marriage was first legalized in the United States back in 2012. And what he was pointing out is that uh, up to that point... Uh, the American public had voted 35 times not to approve same-sex marriage. And then in 2012, four states voted to approve it. And his question was, what changed? What, what was the difference in, in the lead-up to those, to those referendums? Well, according to uh, an author named Sasha Eisenberg, uh, who wrote a book on this topic, on the kind of this transition, one of the big changes that he points to was the fact that LGBTQ activists changed their strategy instead of simply debating the issue of what would be better for society or the merits or the whatever of of same-sex marriage as a uh, contrasting traditional marriage, instead of just that, uh, what they did is they began to publicly shame those who were fighting for traditional marriage. And so one of the examples he gives is um, uh, Doug Manchester was a person who gave money Uh, to help sort of get the word out uh, and and advocate for the traditional biblical view of marriage. He gave $125,000 to the cause. Um, All of this is publicly listed. So they simply went to the hotel that he owns and they began to pick it. Activists outside, uh, you know, calling him that he hated everyone, um, you know, telling people not to go to his hotel. They went there for days and weeks and months, even years they were at this hotel. His business plummeted. They did this uh, to people all over the country. All those people that would give money and that would support the traditional view of marriage, they publicly shamed them. And here is the result. This is from Eisenberg in his book. He says, The impact on the marriage debate became visible in November 2012 when same-sex marriage advocates won four states after losing in every one of the 35 that previously put the question before voters a mix of targeted boycotts and general cultural disapprobation combined to create such a stigma around disapproval of same-sex marriage that many of the opposition's largest individual, corporate, and institutional backers effectively ceded the conflict to their rivals. So what he's saying there is that because of the intensity, because of the divisions that were happening, because of the, the effect, the fallout, Those who were uh, trying to advocate for biblical marriage, they just stepped back and said, it's too much. And the public opinion swayed the other direction. So my point here is is not to do with political strategy. My point here is not even necessarily that we should be more uh, politically involved, although probably we should. My point is, do you see what happens when we are silent? What happens when we're silent is that truth is sacrificed. That, that love is sacrificed. And that's what Jesus is getting at in our text here. He's saying, look, there's always going to be fallout for being faithful to Him. That's part of the deal. That's why He came. He came not so that we would have some personal, individual, safe faith, some relationship with Him where we know that we're great and we're not sure what's going on out there in the world, but we're all good. That's not why He came. He came so that we would be a light on a hill. So that we would call people out of the darkness and into the light. But that only works if there's a distinction between the world and us. It only works if we are willing to be divided with Jesus on issues of of biblical faithfulness and of the gospel. Now, a couple of caveats here. Does this mean that we are to uh, wade into every political fight between the right and the left? That just because it's right and left dynamic that we should always go with the right? No. No, we should wade into any disagreement with our Bible in our hands. If if we feel biblical conviction, we can see it as an issue of biblical truth, and it's and it's something that we have an opportunity to speak up about. We should, frankly, in Canada, there isn't really a cultural war going on anymore. It's been won. But we have opportunities in our lives to still speak up, perhaps on policy issues, perhaps on issues in our work, in our family, where we say, "Look, this, look, I love you." Uh, I understand, that's where, this, but this is what I believe. This is what I think is true. And if you give me a chance, I'd love to explain why. It, it always gets back, back to Jesus. Another question, does this mean that we should be argumentative and abrasive people? Some of you are hoping the answer is yes, but the answer is not yes. Um, look what we, we are instructed. Um, look at the words to us in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That should be our default as a church and and as just Christians in the world, that we are praying for our leaders, praying for our secular leaders, praying for our bosses, praying for those who don't know Jesus, and yet we're seeking to be peaceful. We're seeking just to be good neighbors. We're not looking for a fight, but there will be times. When because of our faith in Christ, because of our biblical convictions, we need to stand and we need to be divided. We do that so that Christ would be honored. And we do it to love the people around us. Because think of the alternative. If we are silent, think of it this way. For all those that are pursuing all the hopes of the world, all of the different secular ideologies, political ideologies, sexual expressions, whatever it may be, think of what happens to those people in our lives when they get to the end of all of that and they are still empty, they are still broken, they are still looking for something. Who will they turn to? If we have not said anything about the truth that we believe, the gospel that we hope in, they will have nowhere else to turn. But if they can turn and see, look, there was someone in my life, they they said something different. They said something about a God who loved me no matter what. They they had a hope about them. They had a peace about them. Then we are a light in the world. We we are the place that people can come to, even though perhaps at the beginning there's a divide. By the grace of God, they may come to the point of faith and they will know who we are if we say something. If we're quiet, they won't. See, I hope hope we understand that this is only going to get harder in our culture, Right? The public shaming is gonna get worse. The division is gonna get worse. We're gonna have to decide what we do when different gender pronouns are imposed upon us. We're gonna have to decide what to do with certain programs at our schools. We have to decide how we are gonna respond. What we need to know from Jesus is that we shouldn't be surprised by any of this. That this was part of, of what happened when he came because he was putting a line in the sand and saying, look, this is truth. This is love. This is the way to genuine hope. And, and if you, if you call on my name, if you confess my name, then you need to follow me along the way, regardless of the fallout. Not because we want to create division, but because we really want people to know the truth. And we want to honor our Savior. So my hope for us is that we feel that sense of maybe tension, maybe maybe a bit uncomfortable, maybe thinking to our lives about the things in our life where we're we're called to, to perhaps make a stand and we've been unsure about it and that we would have the conviction and the grace to, to stand for these things, but do it in a way that is loving and not abrasive. We need wisdom for that. We need bravery for that and courage. So let me pray for that for us. Lord Jesus, um, it, it always seems like it's, Hard to follow you in the time that we are in, but I think probably your church has always felt this way. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see here and now, for those of us who have faith in you, that this this is what was always intended. For there to be light in the world, there needs to be a division between the light and the darkness, and there's a lot of darkness. Uh, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us. I pray you would help us as a church and as individuals to, to see clearly, to know, to know your word, to know the gospel to see so clearly uh, what is true and what is not and then to be able to respond uh, in thoughtful, intelligent, gracious, truthful ways to what is going on around us. I pray we would not be afraid of division. I pray that we would seek first and foremost to honor you and to love the people around us well. Lord, that's a challenge. I pray for wisdom for us especially when these relationships perhaps are close to home, perhaps in our family. Lord, what a difficult thing it is to be divided with those whom we love who are we have blood relations with, Lord, but I pray you would give us wisdom to do that graciously, to do that in such a way that people hopefully can see the love. So Lord, I pray you'd give us courage in this. And Lord, I pray indeed you would purify your church as we go through these challenges, as you're being fire into our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.